Well, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. This is the podcast that translates Donald Trump. We take a look at the serious matters that face America. We confront what we regard as the existential threats to our country. Joining me today is a favorite of yours, Joel Farkas, a favorite of mine, too. He's the director of the American Strategy Group. I am a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Joel, today we'll talk about Colorado. He will share how Colorado seems to be going the way of California. And there's some interesting data from our friend Joel Kotkin on California and trouble for Prime Minister Trudeau in Alberta. Right. All of this connected. Interesting mm-hmm. stuff. Also, I want to play some clips from a recent taping of Wise Guys. This show's getting around. People are watching. It's on Fox Nation. Absolutely. My stepdad loves it. Really? Oh, yeah. I went to the house the other day, and he's sitting there on his smartphone. Like, what, you know, what are you doing over there? And he says, I'm watching Wise Guys. So I was with uh, the person, uh, my dental hygienist, who's a very nice lady. We don't talk <laughs> politics. She said, I'd like to get one of your books from my father. Okay. And just address it to him. I'll give it to him. And then after all, after that, after I give it to him, we won't talk about it. I said, why not? He said, she said, we don't see the world the same way. <laughs> so, I mean, she's got these sharp instruments in my teeth. And I, I'm, not, I'm just not going to argue. Right. No, you're right. Yes, that's smart. Does that make right. me less than, you know, yeah, that somehow <laughs> Spartacus makes you a rhino? It's not my Spartacus <laughs> moment, was it? It was not my Spartacus <laughs> moment. <laughs> but that's fine. You're a smart man. Avoiding a fight. Anyway, uh the show at a great panel. We had Charles Payne, you know him, from uh, Fox and Fox Business. Mark Penn, who was the campaign advisor to Hillary Clinton uh, and Bill Clinton. Right. Uh, Ari Fleischer, who, of course, was the spokesman for George W. Bush, press spokesman. And Annie McCarthy, who was the prosecutor of the Blind Shake, writes for National Review and wrote Willful Blindness. Uh, we had a great conversation about Democrats moving to the far left uh, and the embracing of socialism that we're starting to see taken quite seriously uh, by, uh, by the left. You talk about an existential threat. Claude, that's an existential threat. It's time to catch up with Joel Farkas. He's a director of the American Strategy Group. I am a fellow at the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Joel, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Bill. Very good to talk to you. I wanted to hear about Alberta, but I want to first talk about Colorado. Colorado. Is that how you say it? I think you say Colorado, don't you? Yeah. How do they say it in Texas? Colorado. Uh, Something like that. Uh, all I know is the license plate I saw in Colorado saying on the back, if you promise never to visit Colorado again, I promise never to visit Texas. <laughs> <laughs> so there used to be, it's funny you say that, there used to be a, a, a disdain between the Texans coming to Colorado. Right. Not anymore, right? That's been replaced with Californians. <laughs> ah, stay out. Yeah. Tell me, tell me why Colorado or how Colorado is getting more like California and why we should worry about it. Colorado is basically California's doppelganger. Um, California has a super majority that the, the Democrat controls the governorship, the House Assembly, uh, Assembly and the Senate. Uh, they actually have a super majority control. Colorado has the same thing. The the uh, Democrats can uh, control the Senate. The Democrats control the House. The Democrats have the governor's seat. The other interesting comparison is that in California, some of the most powerful politicians are from San Francisco. Uh, Gavin Newsom, he was the mayor. Uh, uh, two senators, Diane Feinstein and Kamala Harris, they're both from San Francisco. It's interesting. Never thought about that. And um, 
the 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 uh, in Colorado, the well, I said the Democrats control all all branches of government. The Senate president is from Boulder, Colorado. The House Speaker is from Boulder, Colorado, and the governor is from Boulder, Colorado. And we basically have now, in the last election, uh, in the state of Colorado, we have now Democrat control and Boulder control, a, a high-tech city with enormous housing prices and poverty and homelessness, just like San Francisco in the Bay Area. Yeah, say a little more. Our audience knows what San Francisco is and is about, uh, but say a little more about what Boulder is and what, what it's been Boulder is uh, is where University of Colorado Boulder, CU Boulder, the Buffaloes are located. Yeah, um, yeah, Buffaloes. Uh, they uh, they are now a um, they're now uh, in the Pac-12. Uh, for those of you in the East Coast, that's it's not it's not as good as the SEC conference uh, in the Southeast <laughs> and, and the others, but. We it's know those Pac-12. who love them, though, don't we? We do know those who love them. Yes, we do. Yeah. Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, our football isn't as good. But Colorado, uh, University of Colorado is now part of the Pac-12, so they play all their games you know, in Arizona, and in, in the USC, and they, all, the, all, the, all the West Coast teams. So they're, they're kind of part of that whole whole group. But the city, city, uh, city of Boulder is, about 20-plus years ago, wanted and, and set out to be um, a high-tech Silicon Valley of the Rockies, of the mountains. And they wanted it, Sun Microsystems and all kinds of big, big tech companies coming to Boulder at a university there. They felt this is, this is kind of the place where we have the creative class, the knowledge economy that everybody else yeah. with the universities would be there. As a matter of fact, Richard Florida, who, who, who wrote many years ago, you know, the, uh, the new urbanist viewpoint about 10 years ago, wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal supporting that his view that this Boulder, along with San Francisco, are examples of why uh, you got high, high education, uh, high jobs, high, uh, high tech, and people don't necessarily need to own a home. He actually, his point of his article was it's a great place because while housing costs were high and homeowner and homes were were were, were not very uh, pre- prevalent. People could rent and, and and home ownership was just a bad thing and you didn't need it. And that's why Boulder, Colorado, San Francisco, California, places like that were the were the future of of America. Okay. And um, so Boulder is um, is one of those progressive, extremely liberal uh, uh, cities. That is, it's actually the city of Boulder and the county of Boulder. And the reason why that's important is because the county around the city, they basically uh, planned everything to be conservation so that nobody else could possibly even live near Boulder and spoil their environment. So there was this big, huge ring of land use uh, uh uh, conservation approvals to stop people from the surrounding communities of living near them. And they became an island in the mountains. If you can have an island in the mountains, Boulder's as close to an island as you can get. And um, uh, so there, there it's, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very high-tech uh, university town um, who views themselves as, uh, as, uh, as socially, social justice and socially uh, uh, erudite and uh, inclusive and uh, non-divisive, which in and of itself, if you look at the demographics of Boulder, is, is hilarious because the African-American population in Boulder is about 1.2%. 1.2%. Sure. The Hispanic population is about 9%. Yeah. And yet this is the city 
that runs state government now in Colorado who lectures Coloradans on, on in, in inclusiveness. I, I have one quick boulder or two quick boulder stories. First, I was invited to lecture there back in the um, 80s. And I was told I had to wait an hour because my security detail I hadn't gotten there. I said, security detail? I'm a philosopher. What, do I, what does a philosopher need a security detail for? <laughs> so, well, you're a, certain, you know, you're a certain kind of philosopher. Anyway, second, I was on my way to Rocky Mountain Park. Beautiful place, right? Beautiful. And I was listening to Boulder Radio, I think NPR, the Boulder facility, and I just heard a phrase which stayed in my head forever. I associated it with Boulder, and they said, and this is Boulder, home of the University of Colorado, Boulder, and we consume per capita more communist Nicaraguan-made coffee than any other community on earth. Yeah, and I yeah, thought that would that you were in you were in, you were in definitely in Boulder. Now, what a thing to be proud of! <laughs> what a weird thing to be proud of. Anyway, um, those of uh, uh, there, those of you your your listeners who might remember about ten plus years ago, uh, there was a professor in Boulder. His name escapes me, but he was actually uh, in, in a big controversy about some of the things he was saying about what you're just talking about, and he actually was. Uh, Asked to leave. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But but even you know for for uh, for those uh, who might be less inclined to to believe that Boulder has homelessness and poverty and outrageous housing prices and you know and uh, and those kinds of things, the Huffington Post, which I don't think anybody would think is a conservative publication, um, just felt that they needed to. And this was just a few months ago in October. They came out to Boulder and. Uh, and they had this conference with some Boulder City officials, and the, and the topic of the conference was, how did we get here? And it was in quotes. How, how did we get here? And the whole topic was, how did we get here? They have this incredible homelessness problem, this incredible poverty. They have middle class, which is leaving the city and county of Boulder because they can't afford to live there. Um, they don't even have grocery stores other than the very high-end organic-type stores where middle-class people could afford to buy groceries, let alone buy a house. And this was this shock. How did we get there? You know, in, in California, we're used to very high prices. The, Boulder is in Colorado. It's not California. It's not a coastal city. But the median price home in Boulder is almost $1 million. Wow. Price single family. Wow. Almost $1 million, which is double to triple that in the state of the state median price. Really? Wow. That's the kind of, that's the kind of place that um, this university town that's now becoming uh, the bastion of, uh, I don't know. Joel, Joel, short, short answer of that conference. Tell us your view, not necessarily theirs. How did Boulder get there? One, two, three. Um, Boulder admired California and San Francisco. Okay. They wanted to be Silicon okay. Valley, the Bay Area. Okay. Um, they they listen to uh, to to researchers and academics like Richard Florida. Richard Florida believes believed and still believes, and many uh, even Robert Schiller of Yale, the economist, they believe we have an excess of, excess housing in this country. We have a, 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 a nutty passion to own a home. That the only thing that people should be doing is living in cities and renting, and that that we need to get off of this 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 toxic belief or this uh, in, intoxicating belief that somehow. Single-family homes and having kids is a good thing. Yeah, okay. um, they they say living in a city, you'll have you, you, by definition, you'll have fewer children 
unlike living in rural areas where you needed children to help you with the farm. Okay. I mean, these are these 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 tropes. These these are I got it. viewpoints. I got it. And these are the themes you've you've talked to us, this audience, about before. They're interrelated. So they and just copied. Housing is related. Um, families, urban versus rural. Uh, you know, uh, I guess we're 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 restating what Karl Marx said. <laughs> you've quoted many times in, in our conversations, but uh, you know the, the the rural the rural mice and the city mice. Yeah. Right. 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 The idiocy of rural life. Yeah. Yeah. Go to the cities. Yeah. 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 And so they copied California. Not bad enough to have the mistake in California. You had to have, as you call it, the doppelganger there in Congress. So you started this by saying you're going to have to move. Where are you going? Um, you know, I I, I I don't know yet, but it's not going to be here. I'm, I'm so disenchanted. Truly. I, I've seen this. Uh, I've seen this. Uh, the, the, the Shakespearean five-act play, and I know I know where it ends. You know how it comes out. Shakespeare's plays all were, were different, but they had the same five acts. You... Uh, uh, the, the, the people who have moved, uh, many of the people who have moved from California, we've talked about people uh, abandoning and there's an exodus from California. And where do they go? You know, most of the time they go to Florida and Texas. By, clearly, they go to Florida and Texas. A lot of them go to Nevada. A lot of them go to California. Colorado. Uh, I mean, excuse, excuse me, Colorado. I apologize. Colorado. And uh, the the exporting of the California ideal, the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley, L.A., San Diego ideal is is here. And the people I've found in, 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 in having conversations like this for, for, for decades, uh, many of those people are not interested in an alternative view. And it's, and it's not a question of are they interested in an alternative view. They don't like what I stand for. They don't like what I do. They don't like what I believe. Yeah. It would be one thing if I could be around people who would like to have some discourse, like you know, the dialectic form of debate that Socrates described. There's no dialectic form of debate. There's, yeah, they there's like no debate. what I do. I know, I know. Yeah, I got you. So I'm, not, I'm, I'm not interested in living uh, uh, um, amongst people who find me objectionable. Got it. Got it. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to be there either. All right, let's go to Alberta. How about moving to Alberta? No, that's a different country. <laughs> so Alberta uh, is uh, is basically dire- due north of, of Colorado. Okay. Uh, have, the Rocky Mountains go straight up, and we're yep. kind of a, a, a connection between the Alberta economy and Colorado in terms of um, energy, in terms of we- uh, weather. It's obviously further north, so it's much colder, but... There's a lot of similarities between the two the two uh, uh, areas. Alberta is way ahead of Colorado in getting the their industry decimated. Their oil and gas industry, as as we've discussed, uh, has been under assault and attack, not just by Greenpeace and Sierra Club type groups, but also by this by by Canada itself. And and, and Canada is really run through Ottawa, um, but between Ottawa, which is on the east coast. And you have British Columbia, which is on the West Coast. With British Columbia is Canada's California. Um, both of those uh, groups have tried to have done two things. They they have when 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 Alberta was producing a lot of oil and gas and generating a lot of revenue, they were requiring a, a redistribution of Alberta's revenue to other less fortunate provinces. Well, now Alberta has had a decimation of the oil and gas economy because predominantly 
um, pipelines to move oil and gas have been uh, defeated or they've been delayed, the Trans Mountain Pipeline in particular. So now when Alberta is selling oil and gas where the, uh, the market might be 50 or $60 per barrel, a barrel of oil and gas in Alberta is 10 to $20 a barrel. Oh. That's the difference. Wow. And even and, and now about Alberta's having an election. Uh, the current uh, uh, leader, uh, Rachel Notney, is, uh, is, is uh, running against a conservative, uh, uh, James Kenney. The entire, um, uh, uh, the entire subject of the election is how do we get Ottawa, how do we get the Canadian federal government out of our hair, out of our province, because foreclosures are up, homelessness is up, uh, housing prices have plummeted. Um, and the neighboring province of Alberta is Saskatchewan, which is also now joining with Alberta on the same issues. Uh, same stuff that we hear about in the United States. Yeah. Stop pipelines, stop oil and gas development. And, and what happens? We have a mini Venezuela. Now, I know that sounds hyperbolic. Obviously, it's not as bad as Venezuela. But whenever I use anyone uses the, the comparison of Venezuela, the first reaction to progressives are, oh, well, that's a totalitarian dictatorship with, uh, that's only, only dependent on oil and gas. Well, Alberta is not a totalitarian dictatorship. They have a big oil and gas industry. But when you decimate an industry, when, meaning when the, the neighboring provinces decimate this industry, you end up with homelessness, foreclosures, declining uh, GDP. The whole country, the whole country of Canada, not just Alberta, the whole country of Canada had virtually no growth in the fourth quarter of 2018. It was was just more than 0.01%. So how popular is Trudeau in in Alberta? Uh, He's... uh, I think you know. You mentioned you had to, needed security to go to Boulder. Yeah. He needs, he needs more. He needs. He needs the uh, the Canadian mounted mounties. Okay. Let's go to another part of the story. And I, you know, I'm glad you didn't read this article. We both talked about the issue. Let me read you parts of it because this will be very familiar to you. Things we've talked to you about before. The article's from City Journal. It's called Where Millennials Really Go for Jobs. The subtitle is Contrary to Media Hype, Tech Firms and Young Workers Are Not Flocking to Superstar Cities. According to demographer Bill Frey, New York now suffers the largest net annual outmigration of post-college millennials, people aged 25 to 34, of any metro area, followed by, you want to guess the next city, Joel? <laughs> Los Angeles, Chicago, yeah. and San Diego. By contrast, yes. the biggest winner is, can you guess? Texas and Florida, maybe? Good. Houston. 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 And, yeah. and one other one other city you can throw in there that I don't know if that was in the article. You can throw in New Jersey and Illinois. Yeah, you mean as out migration. Right. But here's where they're going. I want I want some good news. The other top metros for millennials were Charlotte, Phoenix, Nashville, and even some expensive areas. Portland. Seattle. The top 20 magnets include Midwest locales, St. Paul, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Columbus, and Kansas City, where a- areas where average house prices adjusted for income are half or less than those in California and at least one third less than in New York. So I, let me yeah. just read this last part and then let you take off on it. Urbanists' faith in the inevitable appeal of major cities to high-end businesses, notably in tech, may be questionable. New York, for example, is not remotely the tech center that outlets, outlets like the Times suggest. 
its share of computer-related jobs barely equals the national average, well below even such unheralded spots as Dallas-Fort Worth or Columbus. Tech workers and the capital to finance them may come to Manhattan or San Francisco, but the growth of these industries is slower than in Austin, Nashville, or Orlando. Go ahead. Yes. Um, Chattanooga, Las Vegas, Boise, Idaho. Um, Professor Kotkin, Joel Kotkin, has, has a very good data on, on what you just described, and that is um, when you look at the, uh, the housing prices in comparison, in, in addition to your annual income, and you look at what your annual income is and how many years, how many years would it take for your income in, in accordance with your house purchase. Uh, it's, a, it's a metric that he uses to really kind of get at the, at the core of connecting housing and, and income. The state of California is double, more than double to m- many cities, but double to almost every other city the time it would take for your income to relate to purchasing your home in any other city in the United States. And amazing. It's, That's just amazing. It is, it's, they're not even, it's, it's not even a little bit different. It is massively different. And you know, anecdotally, when people are interviewed, when they, you know, they interview people who go to these uh, these different locales, uh, something that struck me: um, one fellow who moved from San Diego to Las Vegas, he said, "My quality, my quality of life went up the day I moved here." And almost everybody says, "When you know, I, you know, why do they move to Texas? I like the people. The schools are great. The weather is appealing. I mean, people in California, there's only two groups of people." that annually have positive cash flow from their, their, their annual salary. Families that, families that have kids, they have to earn more than $250,000 a year, and with their housing costs, they'll have positive cash flow. If you're a single, unmarried person, you got to make more than 80000 a year, and you have positive cash flow. Even you're probably just renting, because only 28% of the population in California can afford to buy a house. Every other group in the state of California each year is losing money. This is they are they are they are they are lo- they're spending more than they're making. If you're in any other group in the state of California, the only uh, a, a group of people in California which has been declining since 1989 is middle class. The two largest increases of groups are very wealthy and very poor. Wow. It's a tragic, tragic situation that you know Professor uh, Joel Kotkin has as much information on real real time data of what people are doing and what they're thinking and what they what they're pursuing than almost anybody in America and there's not you know, you're not going to have city journal will post it new york times won't washington post won't la times won't uh, chicago tribune won't you know, no 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 major pub media publication in america would possibly want anyone to know these this, these statistics yeah it's amazing it is it is amazing so the future's those places isn't it nashville orlando austin boise the places you were mentioning that's the future yeah, and there's, there's a, that's the future and and you know the we we talked so uh, um we talked about uh, so when you go there um you know the, the article's describing that that's a future of, of of very high high paying high tech jobs but you know what other jobs are are in demand in all those places and uh, uh they're back to my favorite my favorite industry which is trucking um if you're a uh, there's a massive truck shortage a truck driver shortage in America right now and i know that we all hear about amazon where they're going to locate but Amazon still moves goods by truck. So does Procter & Gamble. So does uh, every other major company in the United States. They can't find enough truckers. 
And the reason is, is because millennials, uh, the ones who, who uh, go to college, think it's, it's just beneath them to drive a truck. Sure. But you know what a trucker makes in, a, in the United States of America? No. If you, if you actually want to have your own business and own your own truck and, and be a contract uh, worker with uh, almost any, any trucking company in the, in the United States, you can make as much as $250,000 a year. Really? Driving a truck, owning your own business. Even if you if you just started out with no experience whatsoever, you can make sixty five to eighty thousand dollars a year. They're going to pay you a bonus. They're going to help you with uh, with housing assistance. They're going to they're going to train you. Uh, and you know, um, this is not an industry. You know, the future of all of this, all of the, the the tech industries that are trying to mechanize distribution of products. The future is also who's going to move the product. And it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's a noble job, and you, you have kind of you can live in a wonderful place and support your family. And by the way, because they're having so many so much difficulty getting truckers, the industry is reaching out to women. Very very few women drive a truck, and that's a uh, that's a new focus for uh, equal opportunity. Very interesting. Very interesting. All right, glimpse of the future. Thank you for our tour of uh, North America. Colorado, Alberta, you, Bill. California. Thank you. I hope I <laughs> other cities. I, hope I gave a, a, a better perspective than Bill Maher said uh, recently about the. Uh, oh yeah. The new America. What did he say? Everybody, all those suckers, all want to come to New York and San Francisco, right? L.A. I think he said yeah, something. He said, uh, you know, they're they're just they're just. I think he said they're just. Uh, 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 I'm not going to use the word, but peed off. Yeah. And uh, the real reason is they want to be us. They don't, you know, Mr. Morrow, they, they don't want to be you. They, <laughs> they want to be them. I think they do. I think they do. Thank you, Joel Fargus, for being you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Okay. Very good to talk to you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Claude, the yes. final four. I feel like when we talked about this, you had mentioned um, Texas Tech. Uh, gosh, uh, I feel Michigan State. Yes, had mentioned. yes, and they're both there in, the in the final they're four. They're playing each other. Mm-hmm. So the bad news is one of my teams is get eliminated. <laughs> the good news is one of them will go to the national championship. Exactly, exactly. But boy, Carolina got whooped. I didn't see that coming, especially after the Auburn kid got hurt. I thought maybe no, Carolina would come back, and they played so well leading up to that game in the tournament. Yeah. Here's the amazing thing about uh, Auburn: who did they beat to get to where they are? Think about basketball, illustrious basketball teams, basketball traditions and legends. Oh, yeah, Kentucky. They beat them. Kentucky. UNC. UNC. Kansas. Oh, Kansas. Kansas. So, right, I right, mean, right, right. are there three better pro- – maybe, maybe you'd have to add Duke to no, get the top right. four. Mm-hmm. But those are three of the five best programs in the country. Absolutely. Kansas, right. Kentucky, and Carolina. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Auburn. A little Auburn. Not little, but Auburn. Does yeah. It. It's something. Uh, it's something. I love watching – both Michigan State and Texas Tech, whom I picked. Um, but uh, Texas Tech defense. Oh, yeah, they play defense. Big-time defense. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I guess I guess the Virginia is still the favorite I was going to say, did you watch the Virginia-Purdue game? I did. I did. I did. I was on a plane back from coming back from Las Vegas watching the game. It an amazing game. Yeah, I know. I mean, it was an amazing game. I know Purdue should have had it. I, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just think Virginia is vulnerable. Don't they you? are. They are. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we'll see. You got a, somebody going to pick? You know what? I'm I'm liking Michigan State now. Uh, Michigan State, take it all. Let's yeah. do it. Let's do it. All right, audience, let us know. We don't want to hear from you if you're from, if you're from Ohio State. They're out of it anyway. Or Duke. Or Duke. <laughs> Especially not Duke. All right. <laughs> 
You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, I want to play for you some of these clips from a recent Wise Guys episode. My guest, Charles Payne from Fox, Mark Penn, uh, not too long ago of the Clintons campaign, both mm-hmm. Bill and Hillary's. Uh, Ari Fleischer, spokesman for President George W. Bush, and Andy McCarthy, prosecutor of the blind shake. Yeah, so in this first clip, Mark Penn uh, brought up the, the, something that we've been talking about on the podcast a lot, that the, Dem- the Democrats move and turn to the far left. And he talks about how, you know, that's probably not the wisest thing to do, but it, it's even putting some Democrats who are more in the middle, more moderate, uh, between a rock and a hard place, because even though the far, far left is not large enough, Number, it's a significant amount of, of the Democrat base that it can that it can yeah. you know hurt their and that does seem to be where all the energy is right, right it's where all the energy push, is. pushes left you, you just watch these guys coming out about packing the Supreme Court getting rid of the Electoral College uh, Green New Deal uh, you know mm-hmm. a, a Medicare for all craziness I think that we are going through a period in which the left wing of the Democrat Party is getting a tremendous amount of publicity. Much the way like the Freedom Caucus, when they started, got a tremendous amount of publicity. Now, we don't know who the nominee is going to be and how it's going to influence things. So far, it has drawn a surprising number of presidential candidates who endorsed the quote, the the Green New Deal, which of course has so many ridiculous things in it that it would sink any normal presidential candidate like that, getting rid of all the beef, all the airliners, you know, two or three industries, millions of jobs having everything run by groups of people who are in certain communities but not the, the whole thing would be uh, a nightmare in any normal presidential nomination and so I don't think that's what's going to survive here I think that's going to get left behind if I'm wrong Democrats are going to have a very bad uh, but, but I, I don't want to gang up on you. you 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 came right out and said you were a Democrat and I don't want this panel to turn on you but well, the thing that surprised me about uh, Alexandria uh, uh, what's her name, Alexandria? AOC is AOC. AOC was all the suits that were standing behind her. All those guys, you know, that Markey and uh, uh, a lot of uh, Merk- Merkley. That's that's because the respectable, so-called respectable guys. No, and I I think people are saying, look, you know, uh, the left has maybe 25 percent of the party, maybe 35 percent of the party. It's going to be a powerful vote. I can't alienate them. Maybe I can get close to <clears throat> AOC. She can't run for president. She's she's not 35 yet. I think that was a miscalculation on their part. Look, if I, I I don't do clients anymore. If I were, I would have told my clients, don't be there. But you can tell me, is she powerful or not? Aristotle says power is the ability to be or to make things. I think she is a growing powerhouse yeah, in, in many respects. Are Absolutely. you kidding me? I mean, she 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 got Amazon to leave New York City. <laughs> powerful? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, someone who can uh, get a company that was going to generate 25,000 jobs, $150,000 per job, uh, tens of billions of dollars in revenue uh, to leave town. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, That's pretty well, powerful. I, I, I saw our, uh, Brett Baer interview Amy Klobuchar. What I find frightening looking at this is I, I think of Klobuchar as somebody who would be the close to the perfect Democratic candidate to run against Trump. And yet, 
she felt that she had to sign on to the Green New Deal. And he took her through every element of it. And she first saying she was going to support it uh, and vote for it, said, no, I don't agree with that. No, I don't agree with that. No, I don't. So it goes down the whole checklist. And yet, so you, you have a smart person who's an, uh, who's an attractive candidate who knows this stuff is cuckoo, and yet she feels she has to vote for it. That's not good. I mean, that's not that can't be good. But for, can I just say the yeah, flip side this, of this, guys? Is, let me just insert this, and this comes back to earlier. It doesn't matter what the facts are. I, I wrote a little op-ed on this, in which I said I understand that if you look at you know no fossil fuels and all this, this thing falls apart. But why be bothered by the facts, particularly in this particular? age. Victor Hugo said there's nothing like the power of an idea whose time has come. How about a bad idea whose time has come? I mean, have you seen the initial numbers of support? This, don't get me, don't get me started as we say in sports, but I, I, it's discussions of sports. This goes back to my thinking about the middle schools and the high schools and what kids are taught about the United States of America. And what you're seeing on display is an awful lot of ignorance about America, what this country is, the role of business, the role of freedom, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, I know you could take apart, like maybe Amy Klobuchar was ready to take apart each piece of this, but the irrational exuberance, the general enthusiasm about it is real, it seems to me, and politically real, no? Well, look, it goes back to the power of branding, right? right. Take the Paris Accords. Well, Paris Accords, I like Paris. A lot of people say, <laughs> I love the Paris Accords. Because it begins with Paris. <laughs> and then, then you ask people, you support a 10 cent, a 10 cent increase to the gas tax. What are you kidding me? Right? Okay. Well, do you support any of the elements actually that would be required? No. So there's a big disconnect between the branding. Oh, let's have a you know a Green New Deal, just like you know FDR, but a new and the re and the reality of the proposals. And and in that gap is where politics has to do its job of taking branding and really explaining things to people and people sorting out what they're really for. Folks, I want you to know, I do the show, the whole show, Wise Guys, but in terms of what you get, I mean, the TV audience gets everything, but Claude gives you only the creme de la creme. Right, right. Well, yeah. I mean, the whole show is good. Oh, okay. Folks, you check it out. But this is just a few things that stood out to me. So then the second clip, uh, Charles Payne, you know, you guys were talking about uh, socialism, socialism and uh, capitalism. And he had a great point um, about that, you know, you have to do more than just explain, well, denounce socialism. You've got to explain capitalism. But you've got to explain it in a way that touches the person who is struggling to get by uh, and how, uh, you know, that it may sound good. But when it's capitalism explained by a successful, wealthy person who's been wealthy for a while, it doesn't ring true with, you know, those who are at like a $40,000 cap or something he, like that. He talked. He's an African-American. He talked about his neighborhood, right. his family, mm -hmm. his own family. Yep. And that he was maybe the only person who voted conservative in his family, something, mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. He talked about how there he has family members who are in um, AOC's district and how right yeah yeah and and he said the and his quote was the ones who did vote I'm sure voted for her uh, because you know when they see you know others doing well but they've been stuck in a cycle you know continuously while they're you know trying to work hard and trying to get the money you know that that they're willing to try anything and it's like you know you can say socialism is bad but to them capitalism hasn't been all that great right right no it's a, it was a very moving uh, story yeah. i remember that i think the uh, the issue here isn't about embracing socialism as much as it is a rejection of a capitalism or american style capitalism and i think unfortunately sometimes when the explaining that's being done feels like what they call mansplaining 
And, you know, I see a lot. I have on my, <laughs> oh, that again. Yeah. I have on my network and I, you know, and I've, and I've seen a lot where very successful people come on and say how ludicrous this is. And, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, and you have people who are saying, well, you know what? I'm the third generation of my family that lives in the public housing. So while this country was great for you and your family, somehow it didn't trickle down to us. So we want to try something different. Uh, I have probably three dozen relatives in AOC's district. I know at least those who voted all voted for her. And that makes me think of my Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and you know the Can bottom line. Okay. Yeah, the bottom line is that you know the, the, they are they feel that they are trapped in a system and they see all of these amazing success stories that never find a way to them. And so the more successful people explain how dumb the idea is, ironically, the more they actually embrace the idea. And part of the problem, honestly, Interesting. is we live in a system, I'm telling you, and capitalism better figure this out, because I think Bismarck brought in Social Security, and we adopted it later to fight off the wave of socialism, right? Because they weren't serious about it. No one lived in 65 in our country, but we knew that we can fend off uh, certain uh, certain movements. When a company like General Motors says we're going to fire 4,000 people in this country, and then they have an earnings report where they have $3 billion in profits in America, zero profits internationally, but they're not firing anyone outside of this country. Oh, and they're buying back stock also. What is a person supposed to think? And again, from a, a, a poor neighborhood, that you know, what, what's going on here? This system is crazy. They just fired my uncle, who worked on the assembly line for 30 years, yeah. and they just made three billion dollars off the American consumer, the American consumer, and they're firing Americans. Right, so corporate corporate America has digging themselves in a ditch, and a lot of smart, well-meaning people, particularly Republicans who go out and try to explain this, don't realize that sometimes they're making it worse, not better. So finding the way to articulate this message is going to be the challenge. I want to go back to what you asked at the beginning of the segment, and you talked about the Democrat presidential candidates flirting with socialism. And from my point of view, they, they've skipped the flirtation, and a lot of them are smooching. And that's a problem. When you look at Kamala Harris say that we have to get rid of private insurance, in order to have Medicare for all. When you look at Elizabeth Warren talk about confiscatory taxes on people's accumulated wealth, what is the difference between that and seizing the private property other than you used a law to do it? When you look at energy and AOC's Green New Deal, that is entirely dependent on the government saying there are fossil fuels you may not use and there's renewables you may. This is all command and control, which is what socialism is. Despite the fact that you can go to Nantucket and Cape Cod and have liberals on one bank, look across the sound, the liberals on the other side, and neither want to see a windmill in between themselves. We have but windmills everywhere in America when the liberals don't even want it in their waterways? Now, this is why these things don't work. This is why it's impractical. This is what socialism is. Socialism is indeed a creeping problem, Mark, inside the Democratic Party. It's the energy and the power of the Democrats. The one saving grace I believe they'll have going into 2020 is math. Because if you've got 19 liberals running and one moderate, the 19 are going to split the liberal vote and leave a plurality for the moderate. 
And this is why my view on 2020 is which one of the candidates looks the least like the other is going to have the advantage at the head start as the others split their vote and the one who looks the least like the others gets the plurality. But, but pick up, I don't want to hear from Mark Hunts, but pick up on what Charles just said. And if I heard you correctly, not enough to shoot holes in socialism. you got to explain capitalism and you got to be able to defend. Well, well capitalism, capitalism is also going to have to you know, explain itself. Well, you know, we've had three quarters in a row with U.S. corporations have made $2 trillion in profits. Markets near all-time highs. Wall Street's giving themselves bonuses again. Uh, again, you know, when, when 2017, we saw the medium household income go to the all-time record. And we saw a record percentage of black, Hispanic, Asian, white households in the top 200, top tier, 200,000. But you get down to that 40, 50,000 range, and it's like a brick wall. It is a brick wall for, all, for almost every race, too, to be quite frank with you. It is a brick wall. Mobility in our country doesn't seem to begin until you get to around $70,000 a year. You, once you get that raise to seventy grand, you are on your way. Okay. You are on your way. But before then, you are stuck. And, and as long as the corporation is buying back its own stock, as long as the market's riding high, as long as CEOs are making you know, $50 million a year, and they're fire, and people are being laid off, or they can't get to that brick wall. Capitalism is going to have a problem with a lot of Americans. All right. Well, then uh, let me put the last two comments together and ask Andy and Andy and, uh, and Mark to comment. Uh, let's take your moderates, which will press more: the brick wall, the seventy thousand brick wall. Will that impress them more, or the or the windmill fallacy, if you will? You see what I'm saying? I do, but yeah, I think it. Part of this goes back to what we've been talking about all along, which is this whole idea of the narrative and the media. Mm -hmm. it, it seems to me it makes a big difference in these analyses whether the media is the the wind at your back or the or the wind in your face. Um, the, the capitalism or the anti-capitalism narrative is a powerful one in the media. It's a more powerful one than what the the progressive narrative is no matter how crazy it gets um, it, oh, sure. it doesn't have the it doesn't have sure. the same hard time and the media is going to beat up a lot more on brick walls but, talk about brick walls a lot more than no windmill in my but the, the thing was as Charles was talking in particular I, thinking about David Horowitz's point that the best thing that ever happened to socialism was the collapse of the Soviet Union because at that point up until that point, we had a concrete example that we could point to of the disaster that, that this leads to. Now, I know you could say Venezuela, you can say uh, you, you have other historical examples, but there is something to the idea that we, the situation we have now almost invites a utopian uh, analysis or a, a utopian vision or projection of socialism. Uh, and that there's no reason we can't get from, you know, here to the dream. And I just think that we're, you know, you, you talk about making the case for capitalism. We have Venezuela, I guess, now as a as a, an example of where this all leads, and we don't seem to be able to make a very effective. Well, the counter is like, well, it's not like that in Norway. <laughs> right? yeah. So yeah. That's the counter, you know, that's the counter that the uh, the, the media will use. Mark, yeah. Well, look, <clears throat> I, I think first. You know, a couple of interesting 
poll questions that I run in this monthly Harvard-Harris. First is, do you think the economy is strong or not? And about 70% now think the economy is strong. It's the biggest change since Trump took office. It went down a little bit in November, December, and then came back up. And that's a big number. When I ask people, too, like, have, are you achieving the American dream? Almost three quarters believe that they either are or will achieve. So you have about a quarter who I think will fall into your bin, and that's a powerful quarter. But it's not 60 or 70%. Although so totally they have relatives who are hitting Absolutely. their dream who still feel like, you know what, I want to get join forces with them because this is not right, you know. Absolutely. And look, capitalism in 2009 let down 10 million people who lost their jobs. This is a different situation than today. Wages are accelerating. There's a lot of positive. Somebody could make a much more persuasive case today than, than they could have a decade ago. Okay. Now, the last point I, <clears throat> I do want to make, because I did work several campaigns in Venezuela, and Venezuela was about the most vibrant democracy I ever worked in. You would have two parties out there, Decos and Copianos, one won, then the other one, I actually worked, we did one candidate on each side. You'd have a political rally, a million people would come to a political rally and the left would get no votes. But you know, the Deco party failed to bring the prosperity and the Copiano party failed and then they turned to the left. Uh-huh. And it's a warning to America yeah, that we have to deliver tale. for people or trust me, what's 10% now, just once will be the 50% you don't expect. Okay, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. You check me here on everything I say. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. And you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Do I have that right? Correct. BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. And please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. In terms of uh, getting emails to us, we take them seriously. Yes, we do. If you listened last week, mm-hmm. you know that we talked to people and read some of their emails. Dedicated a whole show to it. Right. Right. 